you have a Bible with you, open up to John chapter 10. We hope to finish this chapter today. We've been studying verse by verse through this incredible gospel, the gospel of John. And so today we'll be in John chapter 10, verses 31 through 42. I've entitled today's message as Scripture Cannot Be Broken. Scripture Cannot Be Broken. John chapter 10, and we'll be starting with verse 31. Here's what we read from the Apostle John. This is right after, keep in mind, verse 30, where Jesus said, I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, Make yourself God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first and there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the singing of your people. Thank you for the hymns of the faith. Thank you for modern worship music. Thank you for Jesus, God, that today we get to dive in yet again to this incredible gospel, the gospel of John, to understand all that Jesus meant by what he said here, interacting with the Pharisees, the Jews, so that we could learn and listen and live out of faith that has no apologies, a faith that's built on something that's unbreakable, that's built on Scripture alone. And so we pray that you would encourage our hearts as we study this today, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. A polygraph, popularly known as a lie detector, is an important device invented to tell whether or not a person is lying or telling the truth. It works by measuring different body functions, such as your respirations and your heart rate and your blood pressure and your skin conductivity, while you're being asked a lot of really difficult questions. The belief is is that the polygraph will be able to detect deceptive answers if you're lying simply by evaluating your body's response. In short, if you're telling the truth, all the gauges remain at a baseline. But if you're lying, somewhere in one or more of these gauges is going to spike up, giving indication that you're telling something that's not true, that you're actually saying something that goes against your conscience. You see, every person is created in the image of God. And that means you're not just physical, but you're spiritual. And you're created with a conscience. And that conscience acts as a law unto yourself, 1 Corinthians says, so that you can kind of tell the difference between good and evil or right or wrong. And when you lie or go against your conscience, then your flesh involuntarily responds by spiking on some of those various gauges. Now, it is true that some people know how to outwit the 
uh, lie detector test. They have such a seared conscience that they can lie and stay a cool cucumber, and they're still wrong. Right? It's also true that some of us may be a little timid, and you're so afraid you might not pass the lie detector test because you really want to get the job, that you just get so nervous, and it fires off, and you have a false positive. All right? But we understand that polygraphs are still used as a tool with criminal suspects or for any sensitive case in the public or private sector. In fact, federal government agencies such as the FBI, the NSA, and the CIA, as well as many police departments like our own, the LAPD, use polygraph examinations to interrogate suspects and to screen new employees. While polygraphs are sometimes used to see if people are telling the truth, you never have to wonder or worry about whether Jesus is telling the truth or not. Obviously, Jesus doesn't need a polygraph. He doesn't lie. Yet here in John 10, 30, when he said, I and the Father are one, the Jews think he's lying. They're going to be arguing in this passage, you're not one with the Father. That's impossible. In fact, they accuse him of lying and committing the sin of blasphemy. It's just not true, right? The Bible tells us that God is not a man that he should lie. Jesus said in John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth. The Bible says in Titus 1, 2, God cannot lie. The Bible says in Hebrews 6, 18, it is impossible for God to lie. And so in our passage today, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. He also says, I am the Son of God. And the Pharisees think that Jesus, again, is committing the sin of blasphemy, and they think that he's not telling the truth. But let me tell you something this morning. Jesus always speaks the truth. Jesus always speaks with honesty, accuracy, and authenticity. Jesus preaches the truth with authority. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. He's the anchor of our faith. He's the truth that the world needs. And when we are walking with Jesus and speaking the truth in love, just as Jesus did, we don't need a polygraph either. Right? We need a megaphone or a microphone. Yeah, we need to speak the truth into a, into a bullhorn or into a blowhorn. Right? Don't be silent. Right? Speak the truth. Speak up as a Christian. Don't be unashamed of the gospel of Christ. And Jesus didn't need a, a lie detector test. He put his life to the test by dying on the cross for sinners like you and like me. Now, Jesus didn't need a district attorney. He became our divine attorney, and he pleads our case before the Father. Jesus defends us, and he justifies us, and we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. The truth of Jesus cannot be broken. It cannot be denied. It cannot be overruled. The scripture cannot be broken because Jesus cannot be broken. And we know that he was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? He, he is a mighty warrior. Jesus is the Lord of hosts. He is the general of God's army. He, he can't be broken. He won't be stopped, right? He's invincible. He's indomitable. He, he's supreme. He's superior. He's sovereign over all. And so whatever Jesus says is true because his word is true. In fact, I like this quote by Daniel Aiken, president of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary in Wake Forest, North Carolina. He says this, quote, the doctrine of inerrancy is ultimately an issue of Christology. Jesus clearly affirmed the complete truthfulness and reliability of Scripture. Let me make this abundantly clear to live under his lordship 
is to hold to his view of the word of God. And we know Jesus's word, uh, view of the word of God is it's unbreakable, right? You cannot break the Bible. And so this morning, I want to show you four truths from Jesus's life and ministry that remind us that scripture cannot be broken. If you'd like to take notes, it's there for you in the bulletin and you can look up on the screen as well. But the first point I want to make is this, the battle keeps raging. Verse 31, your first blank there on your outline, another attempt to kill Jesus. So right after he says, I and the Father are one, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Now we've been studying throughout the Gospel of John, and particularly here in John 10, Jesus is making some bodacious claims to be God. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the good shepherd. He's already said, I am the light of the world. He's already said, I am the bread, right, uh, 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 where you can have everlasting life. And so they don't like these claims Jesus is making. And so they believe that somehow Jesus is saying a lie. And so they pick up their stones to want to kill him again. But Jesus will not die at this point, right? He's going to continue to finish the work that God has called him to do. And what we see in this chapter is that Jesus is the great shepherd and God is the great owner. And the shepherd and the owner are one. They're one in their relation and their attitude toward the flock. They're one in both power and in their love for the sheep. They are one in their care and protection of the sheep. And whatsoever the son has, the father also has. And the father is one with the son. And the son is one with the father. And these two are one in nature. And they're one in perfection. And they're one in glory. And the Jews can't stand it. It's almost like they're putting their fingers in their ears. And they pick up their stones again. In fact, earlier in John 8, it says they picked up stones to throw at him. So this isn't the first time they attempted to kill Jesus. You know, it's interesting to me, sometimes you talk to a liberal theologian, somebody who thinks they're a Christian, but they're really liberal, and they like to deny the deity of Christ. It happens in cults and all kinds of things. And whenever they start in a discussion like that, I'll take them to a text like this and say, well, he says right here, John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. And people say, oh, he didn't really mean that. I'm like, well, what did he mean? You know, well, he means they were kind of, you know, and they just start to get real ambiguous. And I'm like, well, what do you think the Jews thought he meant? Because here in this verse, it says they picked up stones to kill him. They knew exactly what he meant. The way they heard it was that Jesus is divine. They didn't like that. They accused him of telling a lie or blaspheming. And so they want to come after him. Right? And the truth is, though, it's just not Jesus' time yet, right? He keeps saying that my time has not yet come, my time has not yet come. And so their ability to stone Jesus in this moment is lacking. Their power over him is null and void. Jesus will do what he wants to do when he wants to do it. Jesus will go to the cross, but he will do it on his timetable and after he has accomplished all of his Father's will. Well, next here we see that little subpoint. that next blank for you says a great question seeking clarification. I always love it when Jesus asks questions. It's always a good point in scripture just to stop, to think for a minute. What is he asking? What is he drawing out? It's always something really profound, and this is no exception. Verse 32, Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, for which one of them are you going to stone me? So it's as if Jesus is saying, look, I've done a lot of good things. I've shown you many good works, uh, for all of this has been from a loving father. Uh, which one of these loving things that I've done has made you so angry that you have to pick up stones right here and kill me for what I've been doing? I mean, think about it. Up to this point, Jesus had turned the water into wine. You know the Jews like that. 
right? He had uh, offered living water to the woman at the well at Samaria. He had healed a government official's son who had been ill. He had told the lame man at Bethesda to take up his bed and to walk. He had fed the 5,000 with plenty of food where there was 12 baskets left over. Now, Jesus had walked on water. He had forgiven the woman who was caught in the act of adultery. He had healed a man born blind. And Jesus wants to know, which one of these things that I've done are you stoning me for? Well, the Jews there tell them exactly what they're doing. Their next blank there says an accusation of blasphemy. Verse 33, the Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you being a man, make yourself God. There it is again. The Jews understood exactly what Jesus was saying, and they're accusing him of committing the sin of blasphemy. They're saying to Jesus, it's not about your good works, Jesus. They're not arguing about that. And it's true, too, with a lot of Christians, right? People don't argue against the social gospel, right? People don't argue against Christians lending a hand. People don't argue against our hospital ministries or giving out food in, in homeless shelters or whatever it is that are done in the name of Christ. People don't argue with that. I, I, I'm glad Christians do that. We should be doing that, right? What people argue with is not our works but our words, and that's what they call Jesus on the carpet about. They're saying, look, you're just a man. You're just a normal guy, and you're claiming to be God. That's blasphemy, and they had chapter and verse to go with it. Leviticus 24, 16, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall stone him, the sojourner as well as the native. When he blasphemes the name shall be put to death. And so according to the Torah, the law of Moses, they had grounds to stone any person, whether they're a Jew or a Gentile, a native or a sojourner, if you defame the name of Yahweh, you will be stoned to death. And so the Jews, high and mighty in their pious, legalistic bent towards the old covenant, say, well, Jesus, we're going to have to stone you. Now, they would have been right if Jesus was wrong. And if Jesus wasn't one with the Father, they would have been right in carrying that out. Even though even in the New Testament, Jesus starts to show us he who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And he was willing to you know, forgive that woman in adultery, which would have also been guilty of a capital punishment. So we do see a little bit of a change there. But the idea is this. Jesus had not committed blasphemy. In fact, the irony is the Jews had. Uh, Jesus goes on to describe what blasphemy really is in Mark 3, 28 through 30. We learn this. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And they were saying uh, he has an unclean spirit. Now, that's kind of a scary verse. I remember as a kid growing up when it says, you know, I'm reading through this verse, all right, every sin you've ever done can be forgiven, right? You've heard the preacher preach that a thousand times. It doesn't matter what you've done. Come to Christ and you'll be forgiven. And something in us is like, yes, praise the Lord, because I've done a lot of bad things. It is good to know that there's no sin I could ever do except one that will never be forgiven. And that starts to get your attention like, whoa, I didn't know the Bible taught that. I thought we could be forgiven of everything, everything except this. Mark 3.29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has 
forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Now, what kind of blasphemy is this? According to Wayne Grudem, well-known theologian that I agree with, on this issue, he says this, the sin of blasphemy is, quote, unusually malice, willful rejection, and slander against the Holy Spirit's work attesting to Christ and attributing that work to Satan. So in this definition, Grudem says, look, anytime the Holy Spirit's working on a person, attesting to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah, and the Spirit is working, bearing down on a soul, showing them the living Christ, and they reject it, and attribute all the power, all the stuff that Jesus has ever done to the devil, that's the sin of blasphemy. Now, there's some people who would debate whether that could only be committed in the first century when Jesus was there in the flesh and the Holy Spirit was at work, so it might be a sin only for that generation. And other theologians would say, no, 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 you could still commit that today. If, if you cursed Christ while the Holy Spirit is opening up the clarity of who he is and you say everything Jesus ever did belongs to the devil, then it could be a sin that you still have committed. So I would just say, let's stay away from that sin, right? I mean, it should still put a little healthy, holy fear in our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm not going to get stuck debating about whether it could have only been done then or it could still be now. I'm just going to love Jesus now. I'm going to praise him now. I'm going to exalt him now, and I'm going to caution people not to speak evil about the name. So the problem here with this is they're accusing Jesus of committing blasphemy, but Jesus really is saying that's actually what you guys have done. You see, they've rejected him. And not only had they rejected him, remember, they attributed his works to the devil. Remember, they said, well, he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebul. They, they had committed, many of these individuals, we don't know exactly which ones have and haven't, but some of them apparently had committed this sin. And what we're seeing is the battle just keeps raging. That's what we're talking about. Jesus is just going through the gospel. He's trying to preach the gospel, love people, do good works. And they see him and they hate him. And they want to kill him, and they want to murder him, and accuse him of working for the devil. Uh, the battle keeps raging, and such it is in the world today. For example, if you don't celebrate the sin of the sexual revolution, then you are considered old-schooled and out of date. Not only that, but you are considered to be a chauvinist and a bigot. It gets even worse. You and I, if we hold to a biblically a sexual principle as revealed in the scripture and we talk about it like the bible talks about it then we are characterized as being unkind cruel and heartless by, by standing for the truth we are accused of being malicious despicable and downright loathsome by standing for biblical marriage we could potentially be accused of slander and hate speech i'm telling you the battle is raging right now and you got to make a choice, which side of this line are you going to stand on? Now, I'm not saying that as Christians, we are on purpose using inflammatory speech to talk about how bad the world is and how bad people who are stuck in certain sins are. Instead, we should be inviting them with love and winsomeness to the truths of the gospel. At the same time, we're not going to affirm sin, right? And what the Jews said to Jesus is what our culture is saying to us. The Jews said to Jesus, we're going to stone you. We don't like what you're saying. And our culture is doing the same thing to Christians. We're going to silence you. 
We're going to censor you. We're getting you out of the public square. We're not going to let you say what you want to say. We're going to outlaw books that talk about this issue of sexuality. We want to outdo the Bible. You think I'm kidding. It's coming. You're reading about some of this, even in the state of California. And let me tell you something. As a church, we're not stopping. We're not going anywhere. And we'll stand for the truth to the day we die or the day we go to jail. Our objective as Christians is to be true to the gospel, unashamed of Christ, and stand up as a church and to love people, to win them over with love and with truth. That's what we're called to do. I hope that you put on your spiritual armor of God, and I hope you're ready this day when you go to work tomorrow to stand up for Christ. You guys are getting quiet out there. You're kind of bothering me if you're with me or not, but I'm assuming you're with me in this, all right, or I'll go it alone. Let's move on to the second principle here. Number two, the Bible cannot be broken. The Bible cannot be broken. Let's look at this explanation, your next blank there, an explanation of Jesus' argument. Notice how he kind of responds to this as they've been accusing him of blasphemy. We see in verses 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? Now here in this portion of scripture, Jesus offers an argument of logic, and he does so by using the scripture. Even though Jesus is dealing with unbelievers, he takes them back to the Bible, and isn't it interesting that he takes them to rather an obscure text that you know not much about? I mean, who in here, as we're reading this, could tell me without looking at the footnote, oh, I know what verse he's quoting. Oh, I know where that's at. I know what he's talking about. Well, I'm glad you're here today so we could all learn together. But he's quoting from Psalm chapter 82, verse 6. And Jesus knew that he could use the word of God to help counter-argue with the Jews what they're saying. And so he uses this word, uh, this, uh, this verse of scripture. He says your law, sometimes he refers to just the Pentateuch as the law. Sometimes he refers to the law and prophets. Sometimes he refers to the law, prophets, and Psalms. But here when he says your law, he's just talking about the whole Old Testament. And he says in Psalm, it says in Psalm 82, 6, is it not written in your law? I said, you are God's lowercase g. And so our Lord used Psalm 82.6 to refute the Jews and to stop them in their tracks. The picture here in Psalm 82 is that of a court where God has assembled the judges of the earth to warn them that one day they too will be judged. It's the Hebrew word Elohim. It can be translated as gods, lowercase g, or as judges, as it is in Psalm 82.6. It can also be translated that way in Exodus 21.6 or Exodus 22.8 and 9. Elohim is also one of the names of God. And so the Jewish rulers certainly knew their own Hebrew language and they knew Jesus was speaking the truth. Here's the argument again. If God called human judges gods, lowercase g, then why should they stone him for applying the same title to himself? This is the essence of Jesus' argument. It is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If the Bible refers to people who are just plain mortals as being far from perfect, yet it still refers to them as gods, 
lowercase g, isn't it okay that Jesus, as fully man and fully divine, refers to himself as being the Son of God, uppercase g? Jesus uses the Bible to make his point because the Bible is authoritative and it always holds true. And did you notice what else he says in this verse? Verse 35, he says, and scripture cannot be broken. So here is this incredible statement that Christ gives. In fact, your next blank there in your outline says an evaluation of Jesus's view of inerrancy. Let's talk about this for a moment. I, I really appreciate Kevin DeYoung. He's spoken here at the university and at, uh, at uh, T4G and things like that. He put out a book our elder team read a couple of years ago called Taking God at His Word. Fantastic book on the inerrancy of Scripture, Taking God at His Word. In chapter 7, he talks about Christ's unbreakable Bible. And he says this, quote, At the heart of this chapter stands one question. It is a simple question and a crucial question, one that must undeniably shape and set the agenda for our doctrine of Scripture. The question is this, what did Jesus believe about the Bible? Close quote. That's a great question, right? What does Jesus believe about the Bible when we talk about inerrancy? I, I think it goes without saying that whatever, whatever Jesus believes about the Bible is what we ought to believe about the Bible. Uh, whatever Jesus holds to is true, we ought to hold to is true. Whatever Jesus says is right, we ought to say is right. And the scriptures teach us that the Bible is inerrant, which means it's without error. The scriptures teach us that the Bible is inspired. That means it's God-breathed. The scriptures teach us that the Bible is infallible. That means it will not fail. The scriptures teach us that the Bible is sufficient for everything we need for life and godliness. And so when Jesus says here in John 10, 35, scripture cannot be broken, it's one of the most important things that Jesus ever said. This affirms the canon of the Old Testament. People argue all the time, should we use the Old Testament or not? Is it the JEPD theory and all this other stuff about different books of the Bible? I think there's two Isaiahs. It goes on and on and on and on and on. And then I just like Jesus says, oh, scripture can't be broken. Boom. In one statement, he outdoes any argument against inerrancy. And we would be wise to heed and to follow Jesus' way of approaching this. Every, everything in the Bible is true. Everything in the Bible that it prophesies, it will come to pass. Every part of Scripture has a point and a purpose. There are no aberrant texts in the Bible. There are no falsified documents in the Bible because the Bible is not the word of man, but it is the word of God. And so when Jesus says Scripture cannot be broken, that word broken in the original is the word luo. This means to loose, to release, to dismiss, it means to dissolve. He's saying scripture can't, you can't do any of that to scripture. You can't release it, dissolve it, dismiss it. it. It's the idea here of you can't break it, you can't nullify it. It cannot be invalidated. This shows that Jesus believed that no word of scripture would ever fall flat. No promise or threat would fall short of fulfillment. No statement could be found to be erroneous. The scripture is fully true, fully sufficient, fully authoritative, and we should build our lives on the truth of the Bible. And I love how Jesus continues to connect us with the Old Testament. There's one popular pastor in America today that is teaching you need to unhinge or unhook your New Testament from your Old Testament. This well-known pastor has said things like, people are getting bogged down in the Old Testament, man. 
We've got to just get rid of the Old Testament and let's just take the New Testament and let's go with that because people don't understand all the connections. Then let's teach them the connections between the truths of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Let's take a cue from Jesus who said, you want to prove to you what I'm trying to say? Let me take you back to the Old Testament so that we can see that the, all the word of God in the Old Testament and the New Testament is God's word and it's true. And Jesus shows us this time and time again. And another passage that Jesus shows with us uh, that shows his view on inerrancy would be Matthew 5, 17 and 18, where Jesus says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, smallest consonant of the Hebrew language, not a dot or a tittle, just a little, uh, you know, just a little mark like that on one of the letters of an Old Testament letter. None of those will pass away from the law until it's all been accomplished. I mean, here Jesus made it abundantly clear he did not come to do away with Scripture particularly the Old Testament. Rather, he came to fulfill Scripture. The Scriptures point to Christ, and Christ points to the Scriptures. The Scripture is authoritative, and Jesus is the author. Christ and Scripture work together, and they cannot be separated in their purpose and their fulfillment. Even when heaven and earth passes away, God's Word will not pass away, but every single part and parcel of the Word of God will be fulfilled. Jesus believes in inerrancy. One other passage that shows that would be Matthew 19. Matthew 19, 4 through 6, they're asking him questions about marriage and divorce, and Jesus answers again by using the Old Testament. He says this, Matthew 19, 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? He's quoting from Genesis 1, 27. He made them male and female. Jesus doesn't give us 50 choices for gender. And it's just that's the way Jesus says it. Have you not heard? It shows that he's standing on the truths of Scripture. And Jesus said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. By the way, in the Hebrew and the Greek, it's third person masculine singular, third person feminine singular. Very clear here with our pronouns of how the Holy Scripture talks about this. A man and a woman come together and the two shall become one flesh. What God has brought together, let no man separate. So you want to know what Jesus thinks about Scripture? He believes in Genesis 1.27. He believes in Genesis 2.24. He affirms the Old Testament. He affirms the institution of marriage just the way God designed it. He created us male and female. You can learn a lot just from looking at what Jesus, that ought to settle the debate right there. You know, all these people have all these debates, and well, we think this, and when he wrote that in Corinth, he didn't really mean that, and that was an Old Testament Levitical law. No, no, listen to what Jesus says. Marriage is one man, one woman, for a lifetime. Now, we understand things happen. There's, there's a couple of grounds for divorce given, I believe, in the Bible that would include the abandonment of an unbeliever, 1 Corinthians 7, and the, the ongoing adultery of someone who's unrepentant. We read about that in Matthew 5, and even I believe it's alluded to here in Matthew 19, but I digress from my point. My point is Jesus holds to the Scripture, and so should we. You and I should see scriptures as Jesus sees them. We must bring our lives under the authority and the blessing of the Bible. That's part of the whole point. He's, he's saying the scripture can't be broken because my blessings for you can't be broken. This is not a play on being overly authoritarian where he's just saying, just do this because I said so. Though God could say that and he would be right. 
He's also saying, I believe, throughout the analogy of Scripture, do this so I can bless you. Do this so that I can encourage you. Do this so that I can give you every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. Do this so that you don't fall on your face again and again and again. Follow my way. Follow my path. Follow my word. Hold it to be true. Let it be bearing on your life. Don't ignore Scripture. If you're sleeping with somebody you're not married to, you're living in sin. And God calls us out of that so he can bless your marriage and protect your marriage and uphold your life as you walk with Christ. We have to understand that the fact that the Bible has authority ought to change everything we do and say on any given day. To not do this is to fall into sin. It's Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man in the moment. It seems right, Proverbs 14, 12. There's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Right? To go your own way apart from Scripture will end in your demise, in your destruction, and in eternal death. But to go God's way, it's awesome. It's filled with blessings. It's not necessarily like all a bed of roses. I'm not saying there's no trials in the Christian life. I'm just saying there's an anchor to hold on to. And when you do have trials in life, he says, my grace is sufficient for you. We're reminded in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, maybe the clearest passage in the New Testament, in addition to what Christ is saying to help us see inerrancy, is all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Will you be that man today? Will you be a man of God? Will you be a woman of God? Will you be a daughter of the king, a son of the king, who will take the word of God and place it over you as your authority, that you would live high the banner and the covenant of our God, that by grace he saves you and he sustains you, and that's all built and wrought in the fact that scripture cannot be broken. Are you running to the word of God? Or are you like, you know what, semester just started, I got syllabus shock, I mean, I got papers to write, books to read, I don't have time to read my Bible anymore. At least not devotionally, I just don't have time. Are you so busy at work that you've lost that incentive? Like, man, I'm going to get up a little early. I'm going to get up a little earlier this week. I want to spend time in the unbroken Bible so I can be blessed and be a blessing to others. Are you spending that time admiring Christ, the Christ of Scripture, through the Word and spending time in it? I hope that you are. If not, just ask God to give you a greater passion. Lord, I've been a little bit weary, I've been tired. I've been distracted. God, increase my love and my passion for the word of God. Help me to get up early or to stay up late or to take some breaks from my day. I want to be in your word, God. I want to know Psalm 82.6. I want to know the passages that Jesus goes to. I want to know what it says. I want to apply it in my life. Well, let me move on. A third truth that we see here about Jesus' life and ministry. Number three, the belief that saves can be verified. Jesus isn't asking any Christian to be a dummy and stick their head in the sand. He's like, check it out. Check out all the evidence. It can be verified. In fact, your next blank says the evidence is to be examined. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. This is an invitation for you to check the facts of whether or not Jesus is doing what the Father would have him do. I've already given you plenty of works that we've seen already just in the Gospel of John. 
He's saying, look, if I'm not connected with the Father, then don't believe in me. But if I am connected with the Father, then you better heed what I'm saying. I mean, it's almost like Jesus is saying, if I'm a rebel, you don't have to follow me. If I'm a revolutionist, if I've gone rogue, you don't have to stay with me. But if I'm staying true to the ancient paths, to the ancient of days, and I'm staying true as an extension of the Father's care and His truth, and you better stay with me. I mean, that's all he's been saying throughout this gospel. John 5, 17, my Father is working until now, and I am working. John 5, 19, the Son can do nothing on his own, only does what the Father does. John 5, 36, he says that he does all the works that the Father has sent him to accomplish. So everything Jesus has done up to this point is from the Father. And he's for the Father, and he's connected with the Father in every way. And the Father actually bears witness about the Son. How does the Father bear witness to the Son? With an audible voice. Wouldn't that be nice if any time you're trying to get somebody to believe you, and they say, I don't believe you, man. You know, hey, check this out. <laughs> you just look up, and this voice from heaven affirms what you're saying. It happened to Jesus three times. Three times, the first was at his baptism. He was baptized. He comes up out of the water. The heavens open up. And it, behold, a voice from heaven said, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. The second time it happened was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter still speaking there. Jesus, Moses, Elijah, they're all there. And all of a sudden, this cloud shows up and a voice from the cloud said, quote, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The third time we see it happening is actually in John 12, 27, where Jesus is talking about, Father, glorify your name. And then a voice came from heaven, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and they heard it. So they, they knew. There, there was verification by this audible voice from Yahweh who would affirm that Jesus was his son. And he was well pleased with Christ's ministry and his teaching. And so the evidence is clear. Jesus is fulfilling the scriptures. He is doing the works of the Father. He is telling the Jews to look at the facts. He's not afraid of the facts. He's like, check it out. Check out all the facts. I'm not afraid. We ought to be the same way as Christians. Well, we have a new you know, argument against creation. Hey, just check out the facts. Creation is true. Science cannot disprove it. They can say scientific theory, yada, 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 disproves it, but it doesn't disprove anything. Life came from God. God created the world in six days. I mean, you just can't refute that. And if you do, it's bad science because it's based on a hypothesis that you're trying to make is truth. Adam, you're so closed-minded. No, I'm open to what the Bible says. And I understand that an unbeliever can't follow what I'm tracking, what I'm saying here, but I would say this. Your next blank is the eventual result of evaluating Christ's works. Your next blank, again, the eventual result. You know what happens when you begin to try to verify what Christ said, verify creation, verify whatever it is you want to verify. You know what will happen, verse 38. But if I do do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. You know what he's saying? Even if you don't believe me at this moment, just look at all that I've done. Look at the signs and the wonders that I've performed in the Father's name. And if you look intently at the scriptures and what I've been doing, then you will know that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. It's not saying here that he and the Father are interchangeable. That would be heresy. That would be Sabellianism or modalism. 
That is, the claim that there are no distinctions between the persons of the Godhead. That would be the thought that God manifests himself at different times and for different purposes in three different modes or aspects. This is an anti-Trinitarian doctrine. The doctrine of the Trinity is there is only one God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In church history, there are some terms invented in order to describe the relationship between the three persons of the Trinity. There is the term essential Trinity, and there's the term economic Trinity. The essential Trinity describes the oneness that exists among the three persons of the Trinity. The economic Trinity says, yeah, there's a oneness, but there's also a threeness where you have different roles and responsibilities. And in God's economy, he chooses to demonstrate himself as who he is as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Father planned, the Son redeemed, and the Spirit seals. And so when Jesus says, I and the Father are one, the Father is in me and I am in the Father, he is saying that he and the Father are of the same essence and the same purpose in their work. This is the essential trinity. But as they carry out their work, they have different roles and responsibilities. That's the economic trinity. I'm just saying this, the eventual conclusion after understanding what he's saying and evaluating all that he's saying would lead us to believe in who Jesus is. And sometimes when we talk about this, I'm kind of getting now into the topic of apologetics or defending the faith. Isn't it interesting here that Jesus is kind of using a little bit of an evidentialist argument? Most of us here probably have trained in apologetics if you've taken classes at the college or seminary or, or what have you. And basically there's two approaches to apologetics. You could take what's called an evidentialist approach where you examine all the evidence and you show by stacking up the evidence that what you're saying has to be true and so therefore the person has to bow the knee and believe what you're saying. That's an evidentialist approach. A presuppositionalist approach is saying you're presupposing that God is real, the Bible is real, and that preaching the gospel is what saves people. So you don't spend as much time trying to show a lot of evidence. You just preach the gospel, trusting that all those God will call to himself, he will save. Well, which argument is Jesus using here? I mean, I, so he's using a little bit of both. I, I tend to be more of a presuppositionalist. I'm going to spend my time calling people to repent and believe, appealing to their conscience with the Bible. That's where I'm going to spend the majority of, my, majority of my time. But it doesn't mean we, we don't Look at the evidence. The evidence is there, and that's what Jesus is saying here. You don't believe me? Just look at what I've done. Look at all I've done, and then believe me. <coughs> Excuse me. So he still calls people into a relationship with himself. Uh, Jesus here is an amazing example for us not to be afraid to jump into any argument, but at the end of the day, we look to Christ, right? And Jesus is walking in good works. Jesus is defending the faith. Jesus is arguing from Scripture. Jesus is not afraid of the evidence. Jesus carries out his Father's work. Jesus believes that the faith that saves can be verified. Do you believe the same thing this morning? If Jesus did the works of his Father, then you should believe in him. And if he did not do the works of the Father, then you should not believe in him. We should believe and follow all that he says, because Jesus is true, and he's not a liar, right? That's your only uh, other out, is to denounce Christ. Number four, and we're done. The balance of life and ministry. Some sought to arrest Jesus, verse 39. 
Some sought to arrest him. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. Now, part of me gets encouraged when I read that verse because sometimes I feel like I'm the only one who's trying to give a perfect debate about the gospel and people walk away. And sometimes I tend to think, man, if I only said this, if I only would have said that, if I was a better trained apologist, if I would have followed that presuppositional thing Adam was talking about, then I could have won him over. Well, look, nobody debates better than Jesus. He speaks the truth. He is the truth. And people still want to reject him. I'm actually encouraged by that. It's a reminder that it's not ultimately me responsible for saving somebody. So I don't want to pat myself on the back saying somehow it was my witness. God might have used my witness, but it was still God who did the saving, right? Neither do I want to get too discouraged saying, oh man, I blew it. Because God can still save anybody at any time through his word, even if you're not, you know, saying it just right. So some wanted to arrest Jesus. Obviously, they didn't buy into what he's saying. They still want to kill him. But look at this, verses 40 through 42, your last blank, many came to believe in Jesus. Verse 40, he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first, and there he remained. And many came to him, and they said to him, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. So what's going on at this point? Jesus leaves Jerusalem. He goes back into the wilderness, back across the Jordan River where he first met up with John the Baptist, where John was doing his ministry. He, he was out there in the wilderness. He, he was outside again of the established order of Jerusalem. And John the Baptist, when he first saw Jesus, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Remember that? Then Jesus, after he was baptized, he did begin his ministry. In fact, they were baptizing more people than John the Baptist was, and some of the Baptist disciples got jealous over some of Jesus' disciples. Remember all that in John 3? And so what we're saying is like the end of Jesus' life, this is the end of his ministry. He goes back out to that same area where he had seen fruitful, faithful reaping of the harvest and he just hangs out there for a few months before he comes back in for what we'll start to look at in a few weeks of of the uh the, the palm sunday and entering back into jerusalem but he just spends a little time out there i just find that encouraging sometimes you're out there and you're doing the work and you're on that mission trip or you're living it at work and sometimes you need to just rally back with the saints back with the believers There's some of these people were like look john never did a miracle but he didn't have to. He was just a preacher of the gospel, and John the Baptist was spot on. And he called people to repent, and he said he was preparing the way for the Lord, and he was. So it's incredible to see how God still used the preaching of John the Baptist. You almost get the idea that some of the people heard the Baptist preaching, and they waited three years, and then when Jesus comes back out there, they're like, yeah, John was right. You ever thought about that? Maybe you've heard a preacher growing up your whole life. And then you finally got to the point of saving faith and you're like, man, my preacher was right all along. Or your parents are like, I've been telling you that your whole life. You should have listened. But that's not the, 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 the connotation is, well, just thank God that now they are listening. And thank God now they're coming to Christ and they realize everything John said was true. And many believed in him there. What a beautiful reminder that people do still come to saving faith, right? Isn't that still how it is today? Some reject, some repent, some run away from Christ, some run to him, some abandon the truth, some adore the truth, some are deceived, some are devoted, some want to kill Jesus, some want to find eternal life in Jesus, some want to break the scripture. Jesus says scripture cannot be broken. But do you know what does need to break? Our hearts need to break for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
It's not the Bible that needs fixing. It's us that needs fixing. It's Jeremiah 23, 29. Is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces? Just reminding us, the word of God breaks us down. It's not going to be broken. It breaks us down and helps us to see that we need Christ. And so if you're here today and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I call you this day to repent and to put your faith in the saving grace of Jesus Christ. I call you this day to examine all the evidence that you can find and see that Jesus is true. I mean, I love the story of Lee Strobel. I'm sure you're familiar with his book, The Case for Christ, and the movie that came out. He was the Chicago Tribune journalist who's out to disprove Jesus. And as he does his homework and begins to write that book, all of a sudden he realizes, wow, Jesus is true. I can't denounce this anymore. I can't run anymore. Instead, I need to fall on my knees and repent and believe in him because there's no fault in Jesus. There's no guile in Jesus, only glory. There's no lie in Jesus, only love. And so let me ask you these questions as we leave today. Do you, do you see the connection between the doctrine of inerrancy and the lordship of Christ? Do you understand if you want to be a follower of Christ, you need to submit to the Bible and all that it says about all things? Do you see that connection this morning? If you love Jesus, you'll love his word. If you obey Jesus, you'll obey the Bible. It's inseparable and it's unbreakable. Number two, do you believe scripture can be broken or has the hammer of God's word broken down your hard heart into pieces? Maybe you're here today and you're just like, Jesus, I need to be hammered by your truth. I want to be changed. But God, you've got to do it through your word. Lastly, have you adequately examined the evidence? There's nobody here saying, don't look into it. Look into your science. Look into your philosophy. Look into ancient manuscripts. So have no fear here. Adequately examine whatever you want. Examine the evidence of Jesus' work so that you may know and understand his glorious gospel. Stop lying to yourself and realize that the Bible, the scriptures, cannot be broken. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to go to school here and Jesus' teaching, all that he says, so divine and true. It would upend our lives if we really grasped the significance of what Jesus is saying here, that the scriptures cannot be broken. God, thank you that Jesus doesn't need a lie detector, that no one's here trying to fool anybody. We want the truth. We want to speak the truth and walk in the truth because we know Jesus is the truth. So may the scriptures bear weight on our hearts and bear fruit in our lives in a way that would bring us blessings and to bring you glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.